Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Jonathan Linden Chase. They are included in The Culture, Hip-Hop and Contemporary Art in the 21st Century at the Baltimore Museum of Art through July 16th. The exhibition presents art, fashion, and high-end consumer goods in consideration of the influence hip-hop has had on contemporary society. It was organized by a team of curators from the Baltimore Museum of Art and the St. Louis Art Museum. A catalog was published by the BMA, Slam, and Gregory R. Miller and Company. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $55. Chase's paintings, video, sound, and sculpture depict queer black love and community. Their work has been the subject of solo exhibitions at the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia, and they have been included in recent group shows at the ICA Miami, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Columbus Museum of Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and soon at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. That show opens on June 28th. On the second segment, Sheldon Scott. But first, Jonathan Lyndon Chase, after the break. On May 6th at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Barack Ade Soleil premieres a new work, Shift, that amplifies the presence of Black, neurodiverse, and disabled bodies by physically occupying the museum spaces. In this live performance, a promenade of disability community members traverse inaccessible staircases, recalibrating the flow of activity within the museum and challenging simplistic depictions of Black disabled bodies in real time. Plan your visit to see Shift and learn more at mcachicago.org backslash frictions. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature, and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott. On view through July 9th. Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Jonathan Linden Chase, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for having me. I'm like super excited. One of the things about your work that interests me is that it is so completely, so totally in love with painting. 
and that nothing in the work, not even the sculpture, which is often painted, apologizes for that. And there was a time in American art, or at least when American schools were teaching artists, when black queer artists weren't supposed to invest themselves in a traditional medium. So the first thing I was wondering was whether you went through that experience of having teachers trying to nudge you into other directions. For me, for like a long time, I knew I was wanted to paint, you know, like drawing, I feel like for like a lot of artists, including myself, was like my first like kind of like love language drawing. But I always like admired like painting and knew I wanted to like, you know, be a painter. And when I found myself in undergrad, I was, you know, kind of like trying out oil paint and everything, learning off like the basics and stuff. And then when, you know, you start kind of like getting to the point where you want to paint something more like you kind of like care about something that has like a higher stake to it. For me, like kind of identity wise, there was always kind of like you should try like video or like sculpture or often a lot of times um, people were kind of like asking instead of concentrating in painting and drawing, why not do uh, multidisciplinary, which was also a program you could take. I'm all about experimentation and that sort of thing, but it was just like really, really important for me to like figure out like these problems in painting. So through experimentation with different materials, I just tried to like figure it out through like what painting meant for me. To that end, I asked that first question really so I could ask the second question, which is what kept you painting? I think like a part of it was like not seeing as many painters doing what I found was important or what I was interested in in terms of like uh, queer black identity. And, mm. you know, there was lots of like black painters who I really admired, but I just felt like there wasn't anyone really out there who was like really kind of like hitting it the way that like I saw it. So I guess there's like that, I guess that saying, like, if you don't see something somewhere, like you kind of just like take it on yourself and then like kind of put it out there. So that had me thinking in that way a lot that I wanted to do something that, you know, was just really like I wasn't seeing a lot. And just like the texture and just sort of like the smell of the paint, you know, it was like paint's like a very like fun material. It's like really like kind of like liberating and i think you know with all the kind of traditional kind of like energies and kind of like thoughts around it it kind of also made sense to kind of be you know turning it on its head a little bit with how i was using the the paint as a material and then with the subject matter you know kind of like elevating it in ways taking it in different like directions was just really like kind of exciting and like kind of seductive to me i'm glad you mentioned drawing one of the things that i love about your work is that it's so rooted in a drawing practice the way you paint faces or limbs is very drawn when you started painting was that just fundamental to making paintings or did you go through a process of thinking about migrating a drawing practice into oil and canvas? So for a while, I kind of kind of kept them like sort of like in my mind, like separated until I was able to kind of like not 
hold certain beliefs as sacred anymore. You know, I kind of feel like, you know, like academia is like really weird sometimes. You know, like you take the information, you do with it what you will, what serves you, what doesn't serve you. So there was a point in time where I kind of was looking at them not quite as like a hierarchy, but I kind of just was like keeping them as like two separate things. But when I started thinking about like, you know, this idea of like intersectionality and thinking about multiple identities, the drawing really was what was super important in the ways that like I work with like transparency overlaps, like time, like things like that. And definitely like trying to just sort of like find like the poetics and like a shape or like the power that you can charge like align with so the two just sort of like became like one kind of thing and i think a part of that was the experimentation i was doing where i was embroidering for a lot uh, a lot of time it was great until it kind of wasn't great but i did learn a lot from it that kind of takes a different form of my work so drawing is still like super important within itself as its um, own kind of like a bubble in my practice, but definitely still is really super important as to how I'll uh, sometime will draw something, sketch it out maybe really quick and I'll sit on it, save it, or I'll just like kind of take that information and just apply it to the canvas. So sometimes it'll just be automatically onto the surface, but because I just love drawing so much, I'm often still just like on paper and stuff like that, just like collecting all of like the ideas and stuff. The great thing about that answer is that there's a bunch in it that I think is going to come up again as we talk about specific paintings and that will give us an opportunity to talk more about, about some specifics. One of the things that I really love about your work is that you're as invested in the medium's history and constructions and subjects as you are in its materiality. And so for a painting nerd, there are a lot of places to go. And so by way of talking about that a bit, I thought I'd raise a specific painting. And both because I love it, but also because I think it's a good example of this, I picked a 2022 painting from your last show at Company Gallery in New York called Siren Song Echo. And we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Let's start with sirens themselves. Why did, uh, which you queered, which we'll come to, why did sirens, which are, of course, figures from mythology that come to us down through Homer and the Odyssey, why did sirens interest you? Sirens really interest me for a couple of reasons. Like, I grew up a lot on, like, horror and, like, science fiction and fantasy and... For, like, bodies of my work, when I get, like, really invested in the theme, I like to kind of look at it from, like, popular culture viewpoint, a historical viewpoint from, like, you know, like, painting history and stuff like that. So it made sense for me to kind of balance something that was more kind of what someone would consider fantasy and something that was more kind of steeped in reality, you know, like more autobiographical things and stuff like that. So when I'm like compiling like a show, I'm often kind of like mixing and blurring the two together to make like sort of 
whatever immersive experience that I'm like aiming for. And I always think it's like interesting. Gender selfless is very interesting and complicated and all of these things. And for that particular kind of creature, (laughs) I thought it was really interesting to sort of do like a different take on it where um you would have like these figures that were both very kind of like mysterious maybe kind of like attractive but then also um a little bit dangerous because i think you know um different things can happen at the same time that kind of go together but like can conflict at the same time the mouths which are a reoccurring kind of like um, zone on the body that I like to explore and talk about in my work. I thought it was really great to kind of like use that as a way to also talk about like my love of like music and the sort of ways that like kind of hymns or music work and like religion and stuff like that and something that's kind of like pulling you or guiding you through this sort of unclear territory that's mysterious the show's title was fog so i was investigating like lots of ideas around like um the beach the navy where like queerness like kind of like falls and reacts with those sort of things there are indeed on on the surface of the painting representations of musical notes as well. One of the things I thought of when I first saw this picture was how in the Odyssey, which is how we know the whole, you know, which is where the cultural construct of sirens comes from. In the Odyssey, Homer does not assign shape, physical feature, gender, anything to sirens. They aren't described in, in the epic poem. Was that part of the attraction to you that you could, I mean, obviously the form has is almost always in European cultural history been represented as kind of being a winged female, but was that lack of specificity within the source within Homer's Odyssey of interest to you? Yeah, that was definitely of late interest to me and which made me like that particular, you know, telling of it, like really like fascinating, especially like how you just described that. A lot of times they're like these like winged kind of like more femme presenting like kind of like bodies creatures. Yeah, and, and, and like kind of birdie, which yours aren't. Yours, in fact, you're kind of recasting the story within the French bather tradition. Why were you interested in taking this ancient story and making it within a French bather tradition that was then yours and black and queer? Because I think a lot of times when you're thinking of especially like uh, what I would consider fantasy and in the day and age that we're living in now with like popular culture there's lots of like erasure happening or these these sort of like weird rules of like what type of body is allowed in fantasy which can be really you know absurd because you know like these creatures are you know make-believe so they could kind of really be anything to like the person's you know imagination and for me this was like a way to kind of like more complicate like the image canon of like different types of like black bodies and different types of like histories or or media for instance we have like lots of movies that are in like their remake kind of like phenomenon right now and you know there's lots of controversy over like 
characters that are casted a certain race or color or body type and stuff like that and i think that you know those kind of things are like super important and we have to like think about like just sort of like these things that we hold traditionally so much a certain way and think about them kind of being like other kind of like possibilities and for me world building is like so important so it just made sense for me to depict the bodies in a way that was representative and reflective of the type of beauty and things that i find important we were talking about drawing a moment ago and this is a yeah this isn't a word sorry a draw e painting <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things i thought about in thinking about this painting is that the lines and the way the the figures in the water both built with black lines reminded me of Greek pottery. Are those interests and references that were of interest to you, or is that just somebody from the outside finding something, as as we tend to do? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think like you're definitely correct to like have that reading. That was something that I was thinking about, like just like the aesthetics of like that time period and like the architecture, the pottery and things like that. And, you know, there's a challenge with sort of like trying to capture some of that, but to not be so hitting you over the head with it or so on the nose. But I definitely love like all of like these like narratives that you find on like the ancient pottery and like the really like beautiful like craftsmanship and like how the figures are like telling like these stories and the way that the figures are so like kind of stylized and definitely like the way like the use of black with like the positive and the negative were appealing to me as well. Well, speaking of that, one of your moves across your oeuvre has to present the stuff in a painting, clothes, limbs, floors, beds, whatever as translucent, allowing you to layer stuff on top of stuff, almost like you were a photographer in the 1970s and you were stacking negatives before making a print to provide like a multiple image. So I'm thinking of works, and we'll have images on, on, on the webpage, of Quiet Storm from 2016, or one of my favorite works of yours, 2018's Diamonds All Over My Body, which is a kind of a Matisse blue nude mixed with a bit of queered Picasso and, and a rearranging of body parks. When and why did you land on, on translucence, if that's a good word, or layering, if that's a better word, or throw in a, a word you might like better? <laughs> <laughs> I think those are words that I used to describe those kind of things too. So for me, being a lot about the body physically but then also sort of the things that we don't see on the surface whether that's like that like the things we can touch like the the clothes the skin the flesh i'm really interested in for what i'm kind of like describing as like inner landscapes like psychological emotional spiritual and i believe that the body can hold different memories or sensations like if how you were to crumble paper or to like soak something like a stain and the transparencies are a great way for me to kind of also talk about like vulnerability and i try to like kind of always go for something that feels the most honest and i think when you go for that then that's what like something that feels and looks real and 
a lot of times the transparencies also have to do about body space and time relationships. So there's kind of like this way that I overlap certain shapes that can make um, something appear that it's maybe in the past or the present or kind of like moving or maybe even frozen sometime mm-hmm. um, with addition to sort of confusing like whether or not they're made kind of as the same like kind of body or person sometimes. That happens a lot in the work. That happens a whole lot in the work where I find myself looking a third or fourth time to see if I'm seeing one volumetric figure or two figures flattened on top of each other. Yeah, yeah. The transparency really allows just for a more complicated space, allowing for me to be able to show the multiple sort of like sensory haptical things that are happening. If I'm talking about taste or smell or touch and things like that, because, you know, it's so... um kind of like sensory heavy in that way because it's all of a relationship to like the specific kind of body and then when other bodies start coming into play then it just makes it all the more like kind of like fun but then also all the more complicated where like yeah you can't tell if this person maybe has two heads or if this person has like three or five arms or maybe this is an arm from last Wednesday, but this is an arm that's in February, like a day from now. So those kind of things too. The way the viewer sees layering within a pictorial construction in your paintings also is in some ways a metaphor for painting itself. And in, in, in paintings, of course, are constructed by layers being built on top of layers. I don't know if, if that's a reference or an extension or a metaphor that interests you, but it's something I've thought about a lot in, in terms of your work. Oh, absolutely. Like oh, um, such a painter. <laughs> some of my favorite painters are painters like Saltine de Kooning, Francis Bacon. Now that I'm thinking about it, I haven't erased uh, anything in a number of years. You know, you're just kind of like... Oh, you mean on the surface of the painting? Yeah, like, I haven't, like, or even if I'm drawing, I, I don't erase. I just transform or figure it out. Like, it's like a problem to solve. And it becomes a part of the memory of the layering, right? So, in that way where, you know, I'm not trying to make an illusion, like, in this way that I'm trying to trick you that it's not paint. I just, like, want you to see sort of, like, those processes that involves, like, the compiling of, like, the image, um, well, which I think it's like really um, just tactically like really pleasing to me, you know, to see off the textures and like the washiness. I think that also makes it more kind of like accessible in this way as like a language. That's really cool. Maybe a way of talking about that a little more is that 2018 painting I mentioned a moment ago, Diamonds All Over My Body. Is that you? Uh, (laughs) yes, actually, it is me, but then it's kind of not me at the same time. That happens happens a lot in the work. Yeah, a lot of times, um, that painting in particular was for me really important because that was when I was kind of early on in exploring, like, how I adorned my body and kind of, like, trying to figure out for me, like what clothes meant and like like sort of like how I wanted to present myself 
not only like in public, but in like my own domestic setting, like what made me comfortable. And, and, and just to be clear, you don't mean only in paint, you mean in real life. In real life, um, too. Yeah. So the person's wearing like this, like very kind of like amazing, like dress. And then the transparencies are also kind of like the sparkling and the confidence, the kind of fierceness of the skin as well. Yeah, this one um, is kind of an example of myself as a self-portrait. And then also other people who just kind of wear whatever the fuck that they want. Can I curse? Is that okay? Yeah, Yeah, just like wear whatever they want. Because that's like really freeing and um, liberating. God, imagine telling artists they couldn't curse. (laughs) I just never know sometimes. I'm just like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, even with that, just to just speak freely, just to be fully kind of vulnerable and tender in this way i feel like it's not always easy to do but just to kind of also talk about like the transparencies and that sort of thing too i think there's definitely like a strength within it yes but strength through being able to show a vulnerability that you almost seem like you're like fragile in this kind of way maybe like you can be like seen through to kind of show like kind of bear it all that's interesting because I think this is one of your m- most muscular compositions for reasons we might get to in a moment. But before we do, in this painting, you are blue. Why blue? In that painting, I was blue in this instance because I was just feeling very blue. I was feeling very sad. <laughs> yeah, I was feeling really sad at that point in my life. And You know, I think that just like with colors, we have like strong associations to them, you know, but across different like cultures, time settings, like periods, like colors are very fluid as well. So this blue in this instance was me kind of like in a more sadder kind of like mind frame, but also the interior that I was like working in. I was also depicting sort of like nighttime or like later in the day, like a like evening setting. When I see a blue nude, not that the figure here is nude, but it's also nude, shall we say? I think of Matisse's blue nude from 1907, the instigating painting of 20th century modernism. And not only are you using that same blue here, the green in your background is the same green that's in the background of the Matisse, which happens to live 90 miles to your south in Baltimore. And so I, I, I thought of that. The other really, or an other really distinguishing thing about this painting is your combined use of shadow, or maybe remnant of human presence is a better word, and how it provides this intense muscularity pinning down of of the composition. It's kind of a black diagonal with a neck and a head and an arm and hands and maybe a foot that runs through the middle of the picture. How should we think of that use of black and shadowing in the picture? I always try to use like shadows as a way to think about kind of like the shadow self, like alter ego wise, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then also as a way to sort of like anchor and to put weight into kind of balance and contrast with like lighter um, components to the picture and then I think of like also like artists who like use like really kind of like black or shadows on like really 
great ways. Like, I really love, like, Max Beckman, um, Kara Walker and their silhouettes. And then also I think that there's, like, just something, like, really great about trying to find a, just a beauty and, like, the shadow that can be a little bit more mysterious or, like, ominous. You know, just, like, zones and moments in the painting where you can identify this is a certain object or this is like a certain expression but then the shadows i feel like just kind of like thinking of like a deeper like kind of space along with like kind of like anchoring or like stabilizing in a way which is interesting because you you often don't or choose not to anchor and and stabilize there there are two other things in this painting i want to touch on before moving on and there are two things that are in a whole lot of your paintings one is flowers there's a flower in, in, on, in the lower right of this painting. And then you have a very specific, even semiotic way of painting anuses and putting them really wherever you want, it must be said. And, and they're both here. I, I presume that including those, those two things in paintings is just awfully darn fundamental for you and goes way back. How did that happen? So when I started using kind of floral imagery at first back during school it was a way for me to think about the body space relationships more in sort of like camouflage in a way that was earlier on when i was also kind of doing transparencies so um the body was a lot harder to read i got quickly kind of like fed up with that and it just wasn't as satisfying to me but i still loved flowers so much and as I guess, like, I was on this journey of self-exploration and figuring out myself as a young gay black person. Years after I graduated, I now identify as non-binary. The flowers just sort of had, like, this, like, stronger meaning for me in this way that they talk about kind of being able to be in, like, different conditions and environments and still flourishing, and also the pleasure points on the body as well, like lips, anuses, nipples. I associate them a lot to like uh, flower petals and things like that. The rose, um, roses in particular, a lot of times they are the anus, like rosebud, or sometimes that they're separate, kind of talking about masculinity or femininity, gender, like this sort of like way that you can embody both being strong or prickly thorn wise but soft and delicate and you know like fleeting you know roses don't last forever nothing does and yeah like they kind of like went from something that was purely kind of more like background camouflage into something that was more kind of more liberating for me and more about specific pleasure points and zones on the body um so it became less about the background and more about just the body itself and anuses yeah anuses you know like i feel like um within the community <laughs> bottoms don't get enough props right there's like a lot that goes into it and process wise and then also just like i think when you're thinking of uh energy or role exchange you know there's still in a non-judgmental way, like, there's still people who associate different things, like, oh, penis, like, more powerful than, like, it is or passive role and stuff. And a lot of it for me is just kind of, like, giving, like, kind of, like, 
praise and sort of worship to that part of the body that I feel maybe at times doesn't get the sort of props, even even um, the attention, whether it's more problematic than like the penis does. There's so many kind of like stereotypes and like hyper awareness onto the penis especially the black like penis you know like i feel like the anus is a pleasure and power point that you know comes from deep within the body and it's also talking about queer black interiority like you know there's like healing that happens there there's like uh, teleportation and i think that that's a important part of the body to talk about always tell people that i've stumbled onto an interesting piece of information that the lips and the anus are made out of the same type of skin tissue they're just in different places on the body so sometime i'm also interested in um, talking about those differences and similarities as well well speaking of painting let's do a few minutes of, of just absolute art history nerdery I referenced a moment ago about how you're, you know, accepting diamonds all over my body, which is, which is a very specific composition. One of the ways you've pretty much always built pictures is to use space within and across the rectangle rather than to stake out and pin down a composition. Is that a conscious decision? Is that a, an approach you have reckoned with? How do you mean? I just want to make sure I'm clear as to what you're asking. One of the things you do in your pictures is you every every or much of the canvas has equal value and equal weight. You don't build a composition where you direct the eye to a specific place the way, say, a cubist painting might. And I I, I think I'm you know in, in in art speak trying to ask why you like that all over democratic, if you will, use every bit of the canvas approach rather than build to a specific point within a painting approach? I think because like, it's just like so much, partly because there's so much energy distribution. Like I work on lots of things at the same time and I paint like very fast. I draw much slower. So a lot of times I'll start out with a drawing or sometimes I'll work from a photograph that like maybe I took or something. And then I just usually like in the first couple of like minutes or hours that I'm painting, like I'm trying to just like fill up like the whole surface because it's all like, you know, reactionary to what you put next to something. So I think like a lot of the sort of like um, spaces that the bodies take up, they're like kind of like the focus. So like it kind of like blends in and out. So they kind of become like this one kind of like whole kind of thing. So where like the background and the body are just kind of like not competing against each other, but more kind of harmonized lots of times. And I think like a part of that too is the way that I'm like thinking about harmonizing the colors and the way that I'm trying to kind of like make the body sort of like really behave like kind of almost like a landscape in a way, but not kind of like it's like a item on like a pedestal, if that makes sense. 
Oh, it does. That's that's really interesting. I mean, like Quiet Storm is probably a pretty good example of that. The 2016 painting we were talking about earlier, in which the two bani- uh, the two bodies have that simultaneous vertical and horizontal space that 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 a landscape does when it's painted. You know, we talked about a couple of the semiotics of Jonathan Linden Chase a moment ago. You know, flowers and anuses. There were two others I wanted to bring up. Nikes. <laughs> yes, why, Nike. I, there are lots of reasons. I mean, you know, there's a classical reference there, of course, but why Nikes? A large part of that is because just just like a lot, being like a a city person in Philadelphia, a lot of the people who I come into contact on my everyday, that's a very, you know, iconic piece of footwear and fashion that just like is a part of my everyday life. So like there's that part. And then there's also something about it that I definitely think of like gender dynamics where when you're like adorning your body with like, you know, like fashion, in this case, like shoes. For me, I thought about it a lot. It's like this very loose indicator of like masculinity performance or kind of like roughness or, or something in a sort of way that you put on this like sneaker to show a certain status or element of like cool and it's kind of way like i think it's like barkley hendrix and like fashion and like stuff like that and uh-huh. like this sort of like indicator of like uh also like sports as well and i think about these things kind of also almost like like a like a high heel shoe <laughs> and then like you know i draw different references i mentioned from photography like i have an archive of images that like I source and find that I take and that can range from just like someone I know, someone outside, television, film, porn, and very often frequently they'll pop up in like those different places. But I think the short answer is that it's just an image that just pops up like a lot in like my everyday. And and sneakers have become especially Nike's, especially basketball shoes. Have become pretty ungendered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, their their friend of mine pointed out to me the other day that whenever Sue Bird's on TV, the first place I look is her feet. <laughs> <laughs> One of the fun things for me about preparing to talk to you was getting to read all of the very many Jonathan Linden Chase interviews that are out there. You are a uh, an elite interviewee, and the fun of it, other than just hearing what you think, of course, is in every interview you pull out of a hat the names of seven different painters and 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 the painters you reference change a lot which makes sense given your oeuvre one painter that pops up a lot or at least more than once has been jacob lawrence which i guess i hadn't really thought of in terms of your work and then when i did i thought of a, a group of paintings which is called your aisle eight series and one in particular which features um kind of fruits and vegetables in box like or box referencing shapes with prices reminded me of Jacob Lawrence paintings at the Cincinnati Art Museum from like 1959. I think a painting just known as like fruit and vegetables, which is the classic title that a museum gives a painting it doesn't have a title for, or a painting like the great Jacob Lawrence gouache in St. Louis known as supermarket produce. Why does Lawrence interest you and what do you think you've migrated or borrowed from Lawrence into your own practice? Uh, Lawrence for me was one of like the first black artists I think I saw in a museum like very early on like when I was like young and there's something about 
just sort of like the rawness, but like the care that they approach like their bodies and like the grouping, the groupings of them as well. Like I love like the uh-huh. sort of like col- like the collage aspect to them so much, you know. And then just like they just seem like this very sort of like honest in a way that they have like these very like extreme like gestures the limbs the facial expressions and even when he's not being like quite detailed just like the way that he can just like make a shape and like it just registers it's like a head or like like a mouth or like a foot it's like just like really like terrific to me and then like their colors are like it's like like so like fantastic (laughs) i was gonna ask about that specifically so lawrence famously from the beginning of his career really uses these Renaissance jewel box colors or Renaissance jewel colors, and you do too. I want to raise a couple painters that I haven't noticed you talking before, but whose work I think I find within your work and see if there's anything there for you. We talked earlier about the way you've migrated drawing from paper to canvas and and kept it really foundational. Robert Colescott? Oh my gosh. Yeah, definitely. They're like on like my top... I don't know, like 20 or like 10. I don't know. Like, they're like such a fave of mine. Like, they're so like, I don't know, energized and like kind of like manic with energy in this way. And then like this, how like they just can like shift like from something that's like a little bit humorous to something that's like really like kind of a little dark. More than a little. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Also, they feel, you know, you were talking earlier about painting fast. And I don't know if Colescott painted fast, but Colescott's have the feel of having been laid down urgently. Yeah. Like, I love, like, some of, like, the way, I don't know, like, how they're, like, figuring out, like, the skin. It's almost kind of, like, puffy, but, like, not, like, super soft at times. Yeah. Like... And then, like, they'll have, like, these, like, really big zones to them that, like, have, like, text, like, which is really cool. So I kind of feel like there's definitely, like, this, like, really, really fast moment. But then, like, when they get into, like, sort of the body, like, maybe it's a little bit more, like, slow. And I think the last artist I wanted to ask about, another artist who, to whom drawing is a big part of their painting practice I think there's some color, jewel color similarities, is Henry Taylor. Oh, my God. Like, Taylor, look. <laughs> <laughs> like, we were just talking about him like, earlier. Like, we were talking I, about him off tape, yeah. Yeah, like, I love, I really closely looked at Henry's work when I was, like, in school and everything, like, doing presentations and everything, like, just really obsessed over how there's like these Monday everyday people from his lived experience and how he like elevated them and honored him, uh, honored these people just was like so great to me. And just like everything from like their more landscape kind of situations to like their more kind of traditional portraiture, really like seeing them kind of was like, okay, like I can like break and make like my own rules in a way, you know, like, I can paint, like, in such a way that I also kind of even liken to, like, maybe Carrie James, like, Marshall in this kind of way. Like, they have, like, such a distinct, like, style that's still, like, very, just, like, like, free and, like, loose, I think. 
handsy. Yeah. I mean, you're a really, really handsy, you know, to look at, to look at a Jonathan Lyndon Chase is to be readily able to witness a hand moving across the plane. And that's in Taylor too. Absolutely. Like, just like, like this idea that you can just like, just see just a like, like, I think I even like, maybe like uh rambled about it a little bit earlier when we're talking like am i trying to trick anyone that like it's not like paint like i love that you can tell that it's paint and like you can just like the memory of like the hand and the wrist and the arm just like what it's all like doing like it's like super exciting materiality i mean it like there's a lot of materiality in your work and i think in, in henry taylor i mean i've not talked to henry taylor about this but you know, I think one of the impacts may maybe of Bay Area loaded brush painting in the in the '60s was that it reminded artists who might have been tempted to move on from painting that the materiality of paint is one heck of a lot of fun to play with. Absolutely, like it just like asks you to just like be courageous, like be courageous and like just like work it and bear it all and figure it out just like right there, like. You have to, like, I don't know. I feel like painting's, like, very hard, you know, at times. But it, like, also gives you, like, this space. Just, like, whether I think, like, meditatively or spiritually, just kind of, like, figure out things. Like, I love having a problem to solve. <laughs> That's a great place to close. Jonathan Linden Chase, thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was so great talking with you. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Fay Heavy Shield Confluences, curated by Tamara Schenkenberg, on view now through August 6th. Confluences features a selection of Fay Heavy Shield's drawings and sculptures from the 1980s to the present, alongside two commissions responding to landscapes and histories of the greater St. Louis area. During a career that spans more than 30 years, Heavy Shield's work draws upon her family histories, traditional Gaina stories, language, and knowledge, as well as childhood experiences in the residential school system. The spare power of the prairie landscape of her home community informs Heavy Shield's poetic, often minimal aesthetic vocabulary and use of humble materials. Check out the exhibition on the Pulitzer's digital guide through Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. This digital guide takes you behind the scenes at the Pulitzer with exclusive multimedia perspectives from artists, curators, and more. Use the app to plan your visit then easily access helpful insights on-site. Afterward, dive deeper into your favorite works at home or anywhere, anytime. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art 
enhanced by the Hussein Afshar Collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash islamicworlds. Welcome back. My next guest, Sheldon Scott, is included in Spirit in the Land at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The exhibition considers today's ecological concerns and demonstrates how our identities and natural environments are intertwined. The show particularly focuses on the relationship between the mainland United States and the Caribbean. Curated by Trevor Schoonmaker, it is on view through July 9th. The exhibition is accompanied by a catalog, which is available only at the Nasher. This weekend, Sheldon Scott is presenting a performance titled Portrait Number One Man, Day Clean to Sundown, at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in New Orleans. We'll have a link to information about that performance on manpodcast.com. Scott's work builds upon his upbringing in Gullah Geechee culture and his background in storytelling to examine the black male form. His work has been exhibited at the Driscoll Center at the University of Maryland, the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, and more. Sheldon Scott, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. Thank you. Very happy to be here. The work and spirit in the land, which is titled Portrait, Number One Man, Day Clean to Sundown, is the rare video installation that is both 12 hours and 20 minutes long and absolutely gripping. It's performance, it's family history, it's lots of things at once. So let's start with the history that informed the piece. Why was, why is the Gullah Geechee South of interest to you? Yeah, well, that's um, where I'm born and raised, originally from Pauley's Island, South Carolina. And, you know, where the film was shot was actually in a restored rice field as a part of the enslavement camp and enslavement labor camp. That was the Brook Green and Springfield Plantation and where my ancestors were enslaved. I had the experience, I don't know how to endow it, but I had the experience of growing up in the footprint of the former enslaved village that serviced those plantations. And I've really just been working the last 10 to 15 years to understand the complexity of that relationship in that context and, you know, what a privilege it is in some sense to be that adjacent, that intimately adjacent to the history of my ancestors there, but at the same time dealing with the brutality that, you know, is in the earth that I, I walked on and, and, and that kind of brutality also being that close to, you know, where we are today. For folks who don't know, Polly's Island is just south of Myrtle Beach and maybe an hour, hour and a half north of Charleston. Am I getting that about right? Yep. I mean, there are a whole bunch of gulags in the rivery waterways that run inland from right there. There are lots of elements about the work that interest me, but I think that when we're talking about a 12-hour and 20-minute video work, we should probably talk about that first. So how did you decide that a most interesting way of engaging with place in history was A, through performance, and B, through presenting that performance as a durational video? First question, the actual timing of the film is from sun, uh, sunrise to sunset. 
So the performance, how it lives in real time and also in that particular video, it's whatever day that I'm engaged in that work, it is to mirror the work day of the formerly enslaved, so from sunup to sundown. So that's the exact timing of that work for the day that it was shot. And then as I perform the work, which I will be performing the work on May 14th at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in New Orleans. Which I think has the work in its collection, right? It does. And uh, so that performance that day is sunrise, 6.08, sunset, 7.45. So the work will be performed throughout that duration. And, you know, to back it up even further, it's like, you know, as a performance base, you know, ephemeral-based media artist, you know, time is one of my most important materials in my work. And that includes not only the time of the subject in the performance, but also the time of the audience as well, too. You know, I just consider the time that the audience gifts the work and the body to be a part of the material and, and what makes the work, you know, whole in a sense. So I'm, I'm constantly exploring time and its, and its continuum and, you know, and, and, and concepts and theories around like time and its relationship to reality, but also it's like colonial construct and, you know, the way that time is used and um, certainly the way that time is valued and the kind of, capitalist undergirding of, you know, the way that we use and explore time. So I guess, you know, those are the two big things that, you know, obviously informed, you know, how that work looked and uh, specifically how I ended up with the film that lasted for 12 hours and 20 minutes. Given the length of the film, I don't I want to be careful not to make like grand sweeping statements about like this is what happens across all thousands of minutes. But one of the things that is most present, if you will, is the camera's relative emphasis on landscape with your physical presence kind of filling often like the bottom 15 or 20 percent of the frame, you know, real emphasis on on trees and rice fields in the, the middle and far distance. I, I would imagine that was a really conscious decision. Why did you want to emphasize land so intensely i guess the thrust of that work was to really explore what portraiture would look like for people who did not have the luxury luxury of portraiture historically and you know to extend beyond the luxury of portraiture you know i would even argue that they weren't afforded the luxury of identity and you know a part of that like you know using my body you know, in the in the lower parts of the video, while referencing or you know bringing into that things, bringing into the actual frame things that may have been there at the actual time, the time period that I was referencing was certainly important to me. Unfortunately, what you're looking at in that in the footprint of that rice field is actually not rice plants. You know. They're simply, they're, they're not there. You know, there's a little bit of rice that grows wild in and around that area, in that region. But, you know, you know, rice, as I understand it, as a crop requires so much management and so much intense human intervention for cultivation. You know, what's literally there now is what was certainly most indigenous to that region. You know, just kind of like overtaking or reclaimed over the last, you know, 
few hundred years, you know, what the natural undisturbed condition of that in environment. So you're not looking at rice plants. However, you know, there are oak trees, you know, that are in that frame and, and, and drippings of Spanish moss, which, you know, I feel like is a part of that portrait that I'm painting, you know, and it's even, you know, even the decision to shoot in portrait mode as opposed to landscape while bringing as much as the landscape in and like using, taking, turning landscape into portraiture, you know, which was kind of a, a, a technical decision, but, you know, very meaningful into like what we were thinking about doing with that piece, you know, and bringing in the trees and then some of the cypress stumps that are, you know, kind of returning, thinking about like the history of that space being thousands of year old uh, cypress swamps before, you know, they brought in enslaved labor to clear out millions and millions of acres for the rice fields of, you know, just clearing out all of the old, incredibly hard and um, incredibly large cypress trees that one existed in that space. Just using, you know, that frame to kind of notion again the the passing of time things that suggest things that are historical and then obviously having my hyper contemporary body in that space also kind of layers the element of time you know if you you know kind of thinking if you know someone had painted that space you know during that time during the you know 18th 19th century you know how many familiar things would exist there and then overlaying that with this very contemporary i idea that includes my body, but also, you know, the undergirding of, of uh, freedom and self-determination, which I, I have to say is very much a part of that. You know, I tell people I appreciate, you know, the opportunity to work with the ancestors and the representation of some of that work that reference. But at the end of the day, at any moment, I could have decided to get up and walk away and you know, that's just a reality that I contend with throughout this whole piece. And even when I'm doing the performances, unlike them, I do have a, a, a choice there. There are a couple of constructions within the work that you just mentioned that I found really interesting when I saw it. One, I, I too thought of how that had once been lowland forest. The only patch of southern lowland forest remaining is the Cypress Forest at Congaree National Park which is about two hours from where you filmed the piece. And of course, at Congaree, they don't tell visitors why that's the only remaining patch. And then I thought about the Mossy Oak. For people who've been to Charleston, the city of Charleston runs a former gulag as an historical site on James Island. It's called, or they call it, McLeod Plantation. And there is an alley of oak trees that have all that kind of hanging moss running between the road and, and the house, or a house. I mean, it was the house, but anyway, it's a long story. But the reason I, I, I thought of that when I thought of the moss in your work is at McClode, those oaks were only planted after the movie Gone with the Wind came out. They were planted there because Southern, you know, all, all of the air quotes, Southern plantation tourists expected to see a certain genteel presentation mm-hmm. informed by Hollywood. And, and so I thought of that when I saw the, the moss in your piece. The other focus of this work is your hands. What are your hands doing in the work? And why was that such an important 
why was that a place you wanted the visitor to or the viewer to almost have to strain to look to see to understand? Yeah, so I am hand peeling rice grain by grain, you know, which is, you know, for uh, some folks, first question is like, oh, is that how rice was actually cultivated? And it absolutely is not. And, you know, what I tell people is like, you know, the, the you know, Anytime you're dealing with like historical material, like, you know, there's a fine line between, you know, art and reenactment, you know, and, and what I, you know, tell people is like, this is not intended to be at all a historical accurate depiction of, you know, the way things were, you know, the whole purpose of like having a practice that's steeped in what I call restorative histories is, you know, making assumptions about things that weren't necessarily recorded and reported and trying to focus more on the human conditions that existed in and around that space that may not have been a part of, you know, what we come to understand as canon. And we understand that it's very problematic, you know, to explicitly rely on, you know, historical depictions and relationship to, like, the enslavement economy, you know, because it's just, it was very much a single point of view and lacked, you know, humanity and understanding for a lot of times from the subject that they were discussing. And the reason why I chose to go about this way with the process is because, you know, I I, I used the the single rice grains, the innumerable amount of rice grains that are part of it to, you know, suggest what I mentioned earlier, uh, an identity around some of the folks who worked in, you know, my my ancestors and, you know, the ancestors of many who were enslaved who just weren't afforded any kind of record or any kind of imprint on, you know, the world that they lived in. And the rice cultivation process is unironically very violent. You know, there's like a thrashing and a beating process of the rice, you know, you know, the hulling of the rice, winnowing of the rice, you know, all in effort to take this thing and beat it till its whiteness. And what I wanted to do by hand peeling them is offer a bit of tenderness and humanity to each individual grain to allow space and time for each one of those grains to be held, to be touched. And I put them in this in this basket, this sweet grass basket, you know, because part of it is funeralizing folks who've never had the opportunity to be funeralized, but also like attending to attending to them individually in a way that could bring about to humanity. So the, the you know the what I hope what the audience would kind of see and you know, like you said, like struggle to see sometimes, you know, especially if the camera's zoomed all the way out. There's some moments in the film where it's like very up close and you can see a little bit more of the process. You know, the idea is just like to take a little time as a part of this meditation, because I think of this whole thing is like a, a meditation is to afford some insight. And again, I keep on saying the word humanity because I think it's so important. I don't think we could interject that into the historical record enough is to maybe see some of that you know, humanity and that tenderness and start to hopefully think about the connectivity of our current world to folks who worked and labored in that space. And then looking simply as my body, as my hands, as a conduit, you know, to what the contemporary implications of those are and the contemporary existence, you know, because I bring in my hands, which in some points you'll see, you know, the, the lines and the wrinkles in my hands, you know, you'll see a deeper reflection and connection into the 
the millions and millions of subjects that I'm, I'm, I'm referencing in this piece. Well, speaking of hands and labor, labor is a frequent element or subject anyway of, of your work, including for a series of braided hammocks and a related work that we'll get to in a minute that you recently showed in Washington. What about joining hammocks, which are traditionally sites of leisure, and braided textile, which of course requires labor to make? What about bringing those two things together motivated you? You know, historically, as I'm like surveying my practice, you know, which is an exercise, I really appreciate that, you know, I'm able to do, you know, I think it's just important for artists to just kind of look at their work, you know, individually and collectively and, and think about their impact and think about their legacy. And, you know, I had the opportunity to do that and just felt like so much of my practice was focused on labor, even though, you know, there are moments and in my work where I'm referencing not just the labor of enslaved folks, but also the technology. You know, the piece I did back in 2016 was focused on the very specific technology, water management, and how that had a profound impact on rice cultivation. You know, so it wasn't just the black body, it was the black mind, the black technology, the ingenuity that also had an impact on the establishment of this country and, and the enslavement economy. And, you know, as I'm doing that assessment, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, what what it means, like the conversation around black leisure and these hammocks in particular, these rope hammocks, you know, they were made famous out of uh, Pauly's Island, believe oh, it or not. Really? Yeah, the Pauly's Island hammock and what they have come to be understood as the first knotless rope hammocks and the dominant narrative um, at the time was a gentleman by the name of uh, Ward, who, quote unquote, founded Pauly's Island, invented this cotton rope hammock out of necessity. You know, the story goes that, you know, the fishermen, it was too hot in the South Carolina sun and that coastal sun to have these fabric hammocks, you know, which didn't breathe and, you know, made it for very hot and muggy sleeping conditions, you know, because originally, like most things, like, you know, hammocks were a function for people with lesser means and, you know, as a function of safety or a function of some form of their labor, being on the boats, you know, you wanted something that could swing with, you know, you're, you're sleeping on something that's moving, you know, if you're in something that's moving, that could make your sleep a bit more uh, uninterrupted or or if you're out in the woods somewhere, you want to be lifted off the ground. So like, you know, hammocks, historically, you know, they, they came from that that kind of purpose. But for these hammocks, they were knotless. You know, they had rope hammocks before, but a lot of these rope hammocks had knots in them, which made it uncomfortable to sleep in. But the knotless rope hammock is what really made the Pauly's Island rope hammock so famous. And I was just, you know, exploring that research and then, you know, I hearing like you know what the dominant narrative attributed the origin of this you know certainly thought that it could use a little bit more scrutiny and you know and I started to look at the hammocks and like if you look at the foundation of the hammocks they very much mimic the knotless weaving traditions that you know sweet grass baskets are known for and other parts of like Western African knotless braiding and plaiting traditions that certainly would have came 
from the same region of Africa, the Senegambia region, where, you know, a lot of the Gullah Geechee people come from, who are the dominant Africans who were in Pauling's Island and places not like that. So, you know, and then I, I wanted to take that kind of historical reference and then juxtapose that with like contemporary leisure practices, Black Americans. So I, I you know, took on this this project, you know, which took about nine years, you know, working with the hammockers and Pauly's Island, you know, trying to learn the actual weaving practice and then just studying, like, you know, you know, where the hammocks come from, you know, like, what do they mean? You know, their hammocks now are obviously objects of luxury, you know, growing up in Pauly's Island, like, you know, if you had a hammock in your yard, that meant you were rich and just looking at how, you know, Black people, not just rest, because I think a lot of times when people start talking about the hammocks, they think Black rest, you know, rest is one of the many functions and features of leisure. It's a part of leisure, but like, you know, thinking about Black leisure broadly, which includes, you know, ideas of travel, sex, drugs, alcohol, community building. There's so many functions of Black leisure that are just beyond rest and thinking about how Black people get to access that and then how white supremacist structures work very hard against Black people being able to access that leisure. So I created this body of work where I took all these cotton rope hammocks, turned them Black, turned them Black in relationship to different industries that I feel still had vestiges of like enslavement culture, things like entertainment, you know, and, you know, my conversation around entertainment was me taking these hammocks and uh, covering them in black sequin. And then I made it even more personal to me by taking just three little small spots and adding silver, white and purple sequin to reference to reference Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston and Prince who are three people who are of an incredible amount of talent, but who were subject to conditions that ultimately feel like, you know, work themselves to death, which to me felt very much to mimic, you know, enslavement culture about like how they had to work. And these are some of the most valuable and ingenious treasures that, you know, we were able to experience in decades but we still managed to push them to the point that was beyond breaking. And, you know, how those things are very similarly aligned with the way that Black people are thought about building a relationship to labor, either when it was free or when it was paid. And then I referenced the professional sports. Um, I used tar to reference that. And then corporate culture, burnout culture is when I lose a live flame to turn one of the hammocks Black so yeah, so that that was that work, like looking at the ways and then the performance, which, you know, I feel, you know, I, I feel like that performance of, for me, was the most empowering performance, you know, I think that I've ever created. And it was just me laying in a hammock for a full work day. And, you know, at this space of, you know, absolute leisure, you know, I'm I'm not sleeping, you know, I'm just a vessel at leisure, no qualifications or conditions laid upon it. It has made the choice to just sit in its own silence or lay in its own silence. Still, definitely 
uh, for a number of reasons, one of my most favorite performances. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, like you know, on your knees, hand peeling rice <laughs> for twelve hours. Yeah, that's that's for the birds. Lay down in a hammock for nine hours, and you know, then tell me something. Yeah, the the rice field piece was 2019, so it took you three years to earn your uh, your rest for the 2022 yeah, yeah. hammock pieces. Yes. The same material, physical material, that's within those hammock pieces, which are called leisure, swing, comma, relevant, rest of the title. The same, same material is within Jacob's Ladder, a leisurely stroll to heaven for black folks, which represents the ladder to heaven that's not only within the Christian tradition in Genesis, but also is within the Torah and functions within Islamic culture. You know, it features a reference to that ladder, not just in the title, but in the physical manifestation of the piece. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. In your take, the steps as they were of the ladder are too far apart to be likely for a human-sized person. (laughs) And a braided net type structure hangs from each step, but not in such a way that that structure might catch you if you fall, it must be said. I can think of a couple reasons why Jacob's Ladder might be interesting to a sculptor. But first, why don't I ask why the story of Jacob's Ladder was interesting to you? I was so moved the first time I saw Martin Perrier's Jacob's Ladder from Booker T. Washington. From 1996 at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. We'll have it on the show page too. Perfect. Yeah, I saw it at the National Gallery. And that narrative just, because, you know, I often make liturgical references in my in my work. And, you know, I, I really have been having as a meta-narrative of my practice for years this conversation with the organized church and its relationship and responsibility to enslavement and oppression. And, you know, thinking about that relationship as complex as it is, you know, because no one would argue that the black church was not an apparatus for liberation for black people during the civil rights movement. It was clear all our leaders religious. You know, a lot of the organizing came out of the physical body of the church. But at the same time, the Christian church as a whole, major benefactor of enslavement economies, a big proponent of, you know, enslavement, enslave, obey thy master. And, you know, still, I feel like hasn't made an active atonement around a collective act of widespread atonement on its relationship and responsibility to enslavement in the United States. And still benefits from that in some ways as well, too. And, you know, and you see some things like, you know, Jesuit University, Georgetown, you know, on this path of trying to discover where its relationship and responsibility, particularly to the establishment of its institution. But like, you know, broadly, you know, I still don't feel like I've heard the church as an organizing body you know, collectively come up with a conversation about its responsibility there. The exceptions are not the narrative. Yeah, exactly. So when I was looking at the, you know, the construct of Jacob's Ladder and its relationship, you know, because, you know, I said I was inspired by that work. I can't remember when that exhibition was, but it was at least 10, 12 years ago. 2008. So it was before I was really thinking about this body of work. And just as I, when I was, you know, planning out this show, and I was like, oh, this is where, this is where this will land. Because this idea of like, Deferred compensation, you know, this construct that's in the Bible is like, you know, you labor, you labor to death here on earth and then all of your due awaits you in the heavens. And, you know, I was really interested in challenging that concept and saying, you know, like, is there an opportunity to reap 
some sense of um, of leisure while of this body and of this time and on this plane. And, you know, the Jacob Ladder commentary there was like, you know, making a piece, you know, because I think in the original conception, like the piece was certainly going to be inspired directly by, you know, the ladder, you know, and this idea of how, you know, Puryear created this sense of ascension, you know, as, and this ascension in like, infinity with this um, ladder getting more and more narrow as it goes um, further, further up. And then when I, you know, started to doing the research, you know, I was like, I'm really, I'm really interested in presenting this work as as a folly, you know, as a commentary, as a as a critique, and that's why the elements of impossibility that are in this piece, you know, like I said, like the exaggerated distance in between each rung and the incline of it was also very important to me, you know, not making it too steep. It was like it's a subtle, it's a subtle kind of um, uptick. It, it 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 feels possible until you realize it isn't. Exactly. It's like you're not you don't realize the impossibility of it until you're in it. And I feel like that's a metaphor for like, you know, the deep recesses of Christianity as it's organized in the year in the United States when I mean here. And then it seems to have an origin in the beginning, you know, because this is a room size installation. But then you notice at the end the ropes just kind of dangle. And you know, and the and the idea is like, you know, it's it took some notes from the circus game, also known as Jacob's ladder, which is usually done with a rope ladder and over like a barrel of bouncy balls or a box of bouncy balls that you fall in. There are no bouncy balls underneath this one. If you know if you fall, you hit the ground. But it is, you know, it is, you know, it is is a commentary on some of the impossibilities and some of the, you know, my own personal critiques with the framing of organized religion and some of the condition that it lays on bodies. And I definitely feel disproportionately on black bodies. So yeah, so yeah, that's that piece. You know, it, it, it is in and of itself a commentary on the impossibility of it all, but it just feels just possible enough to, you know, hopefully rope the audience in. One of the things about that that really interests me is the Purrier from 1996 comes at a different moment in black American thought and possibility is at the heart of that per year, and your work, dated 2022, comes at a different moment in, especially in the context of which you were making recent black experience, you know, in, 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 in the wake of four years of a different political climate, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sheldon Scott, thanks so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. I'm so excited that you invited me on and Look forward to talking to you again another time, Tyler. It's been great. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.